Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But what I did at the end of every week um, was I would write down my lessons for the week. What did I learn this week? And um, ended up creating a, uh, an emotional equation. And I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. It was a New York, New York Times bestseller seven years ago. And um, that emotional equation, that first one was dis, uh, despair equals suffering minus meaning, which is a very heady, deep concept, which is despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering is a constant in life, uh, if, you're, if you're of Buddhist philosophy. But you, the truth is suffering is always present if you want to find it. But despair and meaning are variables. And so it, the way the math works is if, uh, if it's 7 equals 10 minus 3, which is the math equation, but despair equals suffering minus meaning. So despair is at seven, suffering is 10, meaning is three. If you can actually take your three for meaning up to four, your despair goes down from seven to six. So one of the key messages um, for me was, okay, how am I finding meaning in my life? And often the way I found meaning in my life was actually cultivating my learning. And when I cultivated my learning, I was able to actually cultivate my wisdom. Uh, and that, to me, for anybody who wants to, at a young age, become wise faster, learn how to um, ex- uh, make sense and meaning out of the experiences you've had so that they become markers in your brain and in your heart and your gut um, that you can use later. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Chip, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be with you. Yeah. So I actually have known about your work for quite some time. I know that Seth Godin has referenced it in his own work. And of course, we know you for what you do at Airbnb and now this new book, which we will get into. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life in your career? That's interesting. Um, Thanks for the question. Uh, they both are very meaningful to me. They're, they're both 80 years old. Actually, my dad's, dad's 81 now. Uh, my dad, my mom was actually a teacher. And then when she had three kids, she became sort of the classic uh, stay-at-home mom and volunteer in different um, uh, activities in the community. My dad was um, initially more of just a, a traditional business leader in large companies, McDonnell Douglas, Union Bank, places like that. And then um, in his mid-40s, he decided to start his own company uh, with, a, with his childhood friend. And it was a, a real estate investment company um, doing a little bit of real estate development and real estate investment. And I would just say that my, the in, impact my dad's choice had on me was uh, it was a really hard thing for him to do in his mid-40s. He had three kids, two of them in college, or actually one in graduate school, one in college. And he was really at a state where um, it was not. A, it was a fragile time financially for him to basically cut ties with the corporate world. Uh, so I think it taught me that you know, God, if you're gonna if you're gonna go and, and and go out and do something entrepreneurial, do it earlier as opposed to midlife or later. Not to say that you shouldn't, you can't do it any time in your life. You should uh, if you're if you're passionate enough about it. So I ended up starting my company at age 26, which was a much more appropriate time to, to be able to be poverty-stricken. Mm-hmm. Uh, your mom being a teacher, uh, I know that you went to Stanford with Seth Godin. You work at a place probably surrounded by people who are educated. What did uh, that teach you about education, and uh, how did that inform your perspective on where we're at with our education system today? Mm. Well, my mom, my mom has always been... Um, she's helped me to see that you know reading is such a fundamental way to to learn, and we all have different learning styles. And I definitely uh, enjoy reading and writing as uh, uh, as one of my learning styles. I do think that um, the big change compared to say when my mom got her degree, her teaching degree, and and when I was younger is the pace of change in the world. And the need to continue to be a lifelong learner is like never before. Um, and so I, I do believe that I have sort of upped the ante relative to my mom in terms of how much I am a voracious learner. Um, this is part of the reason I could, at age 52 with zero tech experience, join Airbnb and be open to it because I was open to being the dumbest person in the room a lot of the time. And, um, and you know, if your if your point of view on learning is that 
you, you, you do it to be the best, then quite honestly, I don't, I don't know how you move from, from like being the dumbest to the best overnight. You have to sort of recognize that it's a real process. And, uh, so I would just say that to me, lifelong learning sort of defines, uh, what does it mean to breathe, uh, in a, in a modern world? How do you think that, uh, our modern education system is going to change as a result of this? Well, what's very clear is we've had a three-stage life for a long time. You learn till you're 20 or 25, you earn till you're 65, and then you retire till you die. That model deserves to evaporate, and it certainly for millennials, no, like very few people have any sort of allegiance to it. But if you look at people who are Gen Xers, a little more allegiance, and boomers like me, that's what we grew up with. That's sort of what we thought was the future. So that model, it, it, in essence, was saying you learn all your all you can early in life, and and then you fill your tank of gas, uh, your 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 vehicle and your tank of gas, and then you try to you try to spend the rest of your life um, making it on that one tank of gas. Well, that's just BS. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, especially in a world that's changing so quickly. So, uh, I, what I think is, we need to have pit stops along the way. And you know, l- lifelong learning means you're you're learn- learning all the time. But you may actually take breaks in midlife or in mid thirties or whenever. And so, what that means is, educational institutions, whether they're the new kinds like MOOCs or they're the old kinds like the traditional inst- you know, higher education, they all need to be open to um, not just educating people 25 and younger. Uh, because frankly, I think there'll be people in their 70s and 80s who are going to be wanting to learn. If you're going to live to your 100, why would you ever stop learning? Uh, you know, Peter Drucker, one of the most famous management theorists of all time, was famous for the fact that he was just insatiably, insatiably curious. And so he would take a new subject every two years that had nothing to do with being a business professor, and he'd learn everything about it to become, you know, sort of a world's leading expert in it. And I think that kind of—it's part of the reason he lived to age ninety-five. It's part of the reason he had a fert- fertile mind. Um, and I think that that's going to be more of the model of the future. So, speaking of education, uh, I know you said you started your your company at, at twenty-six, and uh, I do want to talk about that. But I think that the thing that I remember very distinctly in uh, probably a handful of Seth Godin interviews was he said that you guys had formed this group at Stanford Business School. Uh, where you would get together once a week and you would meet to discuss your ideas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted that? Uh, and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, it, uh, it's, I, I have such a fondness for that time and for Seth. Uh, you know, there were five of us. They're all, we were all guys. We were the youngest people in the class. Um, I think Seth and I might have been the two youngest. I came straight in from undergrad. So I was 21 years old when I started Stanford Business School, which is, you know, not just unheard of now, it was unheard of then too. It was just really unusual. I had taken some time off as an undergrad. I had some extra uh, extra uh, AP credits, and so it allowed me to work as an undergrad. So we were the young people in the class, and, and you know, our classmates ma- made us feel that way. They often actually told us that um, they were uh, very interested in having us speak less because in class, because we really didn't have much to offer. Um, and so, yeah, so, so it's sort of like we became sort of each other's best friends because like we, we sort of were of the mindset that we could, um, maybe we could actually help tutor each other. And that's uh, a little bit of what we did is we, um, we, we all five of us had a, a very entrepreneurial streak in us as well. So um, quite often what we would do is we would talk about um, some of our entrepreneurial ideas and share them, share those ideas, and then just bounce the ideas around. Um, and yeah, and then you know, so ultimately Seth and I wrote a book our second year of business school. We got credits to write a book called Business Rules of Thumb, which was the first book for both of us. And uh, who knew later we'd both have written you know, a lot more books and a lot more bestsellers. Do you think that uh, where you've ended up uh, and who you've become is a byproduct of the fact that you guys had this very specific and deliberately chosen peer group? I don't think that that peer group or that particular way that we 
learned uh, together uh, necessarily created me for who I am today. I think it's actually more evidence of who I was then and who I have always been. So I don't think that that actually sort of leapfrogged me in any way. I, I do think the idea of group learning and having a group of people sort of feed off each other um, in a way where we were all vulnerable, we were all hungry, uh, we were all foolish. Uh, I think that we all had that sense of um, robust appetite for uh, imagining you know, entrepreneurial ventures. And, 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 and that kind of ecosystem, when you're surrounded by people who are um, supporting your, your dreams, your hopes and your dreams, is you know valuable you know in all kinds of environments, and I think it was certainly it helped foment my my uh, interest in ultimately starting a company two and a half years out of business school. So two and a half years out of business school, I remember when I was twenty six years old, the idea of doing something like starting a hotel chain uh, would definitely never have occurred to me. I wouldn't have even known where to start. What do you think it is about you that made you have the audacity to say, you know what, I can do this, and I'm, I'm twenty six, and uh, what, if any, were the challenges that you faced initially to get it off the ground? Well, it, it's it's sort of like my friends, the three founders of Airbnb, who are twenty six and twenty four. The three of them, um, when they when they started, they didn't know what they didn't know, and similarly, I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and I think that uh, that can actually be a, a positive at times because uh, your fears can paralyze you. And uh, but I think the key was to actually, in both my case and their case, is to quickly surround myself and they surround themselves with people like me and they, I surround myself with people like, uh, you know, 15 years older than me who understood the hotel business a lot better than I did. I mean, I, the, the beautiful of it is the audacity of the ideas we had. Um, me as a boutique hotelier, the founders of Airbnb as a home sharing company, um, had a lot to do with the fact that we were not, um, weighed down by the historical baggage of our knowledge of the industry. And so it allowed us to have the fresh eyes uh, and the, fre- the fresh mindset to imagine things that, you know, frankly, uh, you know, boutique hotels were, back when I started, were just getting off the ground in the U.S. Um, and frankly, I, I, I went into boutique hotels, frankly, for, the, for low-priced and mid-priced boutique hotels. The, most of the boutique hoteliers who got off the ground at that time, Ian Schrager and Bill Kimpton, were going after high-end customers. I was going after to the economy and mid-priced customers. And a lot of people said, listen, those, those boutique, you can't create a boutique hotel to satisfy that market. And it's like, well, we did. We created 52 boutique, boutique hotels and you know, create, created the second largest boutique hotel company in, in the U.S. So the long story short is I, I think that you know, you, you, your willingness to try things and fail probably is greater when you're doing it and no one's watching. And no one was watching the three founders of Airbnb when they started and no one was watching me as a 26-year-old buy a broken-down no-tell motel in the inner city of San Francisco. Other than the few investors I'd cobbled together, most people had no idea what this guy was doing. And, and you, know, it's, it, you can make your mistakes early before everybody's noticing. How do you maintain that after you've uh, achieved some degree of success and people are actually watching? And, and how do you maintain that throughout adult life? I think, you know, the... This is what I talk about in my book. So, you know, I, I really believe that um, the, the book's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And um, there's a, the premise of the book is this, is that as you get older, you still can retain that sense of being the intern. I was brought into Airbnb to, to be the elder uh, because of my industry knowledge. But the truth is I'd, I was 52 years old when I joined and I'd never been in a tech company before. So I didn't know a damn thing about technology the lingo, the strategy, et cetera. And then I became head of strategy for the company, for a tech company, which is like, what, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm head of global hospitality and now I'm head of strategy too. And I, you know, I've never worked in a tech company. Um, this was six years ago almost. So um, it, it turned out really well. But the fact is it required me to actually have a willingness to fail, a willingness to ask naive questions. Most people in senior leadership roles ask what and how questions because they're trying to optimize and what and how questions are optimization questions. But I asked a lot of why and what if questions, which are the kind of questions that a four-year-old asks. 
And um, so I, I, I owned my, my naivete. I turned it into sort of a catalytic curiosity. And frankly, because I had a fresh pair of eyes, I actually, with some of my why and what if questions, discovered things that the company had had a blind spot about that needed to get changed and that we could actually leverage. And that, you know, frankly, whether like a few examples, business travel, I said, you know, business travelers like having long-term stays sometimes if they're re- corporate relocations or doing project work, stuff like that. Oh my God. When I first started talking about doing business travel at Airbnb, I was like, you're kidding me. No, we don't want, we don't want corporate suits. They don't, that, you know, didn't, doesn't fit our, belong anywhere spirits like wow, wait a minute you know you guys were like when you had your first guests coming to stay with you on the air mattresses on your floor uh you it was three people coming to a business a design conference they're coming for business that was business travel so the, the origins of airbnb are business travel so you know today seven we ever have have over seven hundred thousand companies that have signed contracts for airbnb for work um so that's just enormous and uh, there was a program called the Superhost program when I joined. Only had 200 of them in the world, and they hadn't signed up a new one in a year and a half. It was a program on life support that was supposed to be actually shut down. Um, and I was like, you know, what we need here in order to actually, since our, the people providing service at our Airbnb listings are not our employees, they are our you know, sort of micro-entrepreneurs, they're our host community, we need to actually understand the psychology of being a host and, and the idea of having both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation is going to be critical to us helping these hosts do their best. Um, and if, if the hosts are doing their best, we're improving the quality on the platform. And so we took the Superhost program and completely remade it. And uh, there are now 600,000 hosts on the, on the, I'm sorry, 600,000 Superhosts on the platform. And, and it's a, a measure of quality, and it's something that you know that our guest community appreciates because it helps them know. Okay, you know, I, I have a little bit more confidence in someone who's a super host. Or thirdly, you know, the the peer to peer review system that Airbnb had um, was very much like Yelp or TripAdvisor, which is great, um, uh, and it allowed you to read other people's reviews. But it actually had some tragic flaws in it that led to a lot of retribution and to some people not actually um, using it. And so I came in and asked some why and what if questions. And next thing I knew, we were changing the peer-to-peer review system in some fundamental ways that actually got it to be a lot better, such that now 70 to 75% of our hosts and guests review each other, which is shocking because in the hotel industry, which I know well, only 5% of people actually, I guess, fill out an online review form. So that kind of instantaneous feedback loop is so valuable as a means of Airbnb improving guest satisfaction throughout our whole system. So long story short is those are three specific examples of where I was naive. I had a point of view that came, frankly, from asking a why or what if question that led us to doubling down on three different programs that have been very successful in the company. Wow. So in the book, you basically distill this into a couple of forms of wisdom, and you actually go through a number of lessons. And these things stood out to me. You talked about good judgment. You said the more we've seen and experienced, the better we can handle problems as they come in stride. Unvarnished insight, emotional intelligence, holistic thinking, and stewardship. Uh, are those things uh, things that come about as a result of just experience and, and you know having been around for so long? And how do you cultivate these things on a regular basis? Yeah, the thing that's interesting and I write about in the book is that wis- there's very little evidence that wisdom and age are correlated, which is sort of a sad and shocking fact. <laughs> um, uh, and so for, you know, so I, so it's interesting, I'm writing a book about wisdom at work and I'm an older person in a younger workplace. So I think people naturally say, okay, well, you know, the wisdom all resides with the old people. That's not true. But here's the other fact. People who actually cultivate and harvest their wisdom over the course of a lifetime do get wiser with time. So while the average person is not cultivating and harvesting their wisdom, those that do it can be wiser at age 55 than they were at 25. And I can say quite definitively, the decisions I make today, you know, at age almost 58, are better than the decisions I made at age 25 in general, because I actually have developed this pattern recognition. 
you know, pattern recognition is a, a, a definitive part of what wisdom offers. And pattern recognition is basically understanding something from the past, seeing something, having the instinct, maybe the gut instinct, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's conscious, maybe it's unconscious, that you can see, ah, I've seen this before. And using that, I've seen this before mentality to say, ah, it, it's influencing my decisions moving forward. So how, how, do you, um, how do you harness that? Well, I think absolutely doing sort of after action reviews, which is something we did at Airbnb, which was a way for us to sort of say, after we had done some big project or launched something, um, what did we learn from it? Uh, when I was going through a very difficult time 10 years ago, when I wanted to sell my company, Joie de Vivre, in the bottom of the Great Recession, um, and I was really actually, I was probably clinically depressed at the time. I, it's, at the time, I, I wasn't really getting help for it. I probably should have been. But what I did at the end of every week um, was I would write down my lessons for the week. What did I learn this week? And um, ended up creating a, uh, an emotional equation. And I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. It was a New York, New York Times bestseller seven years ago. And um, the emotional equation, that first one was dis, uh, despair equals suffering minus meaning, which is a very heady, deep concept, which is despair equals suffering minus meaning. Suffering is a constant in life. Uh, if, you're, if you're a Buddhist philosophy, but you, the truth is suffering is always present if you want to find it. But despair and meaning are variables. And so it, the way the math works is if, uh, if it's 7 equals 10 minus 3, which is uh, the math equation, but despair equals suffering minus meaning. So despair is at 7, suffering is 10, meaning is 3. If you can actually take your 3 for meaning up to 4, your despair goes down from 7 to 6. So one of the key messages um, for me was, okay, how am I finding meaning in my life? And often the way I found meaning in my life was actually cultivating my learning. And when I cultivated my learning, I was able to actually cultivate my wisdom. Uh, and that, to me, for anybody who wants to, at a young age, become wise faster, learn how to um, ex uh, make sense and meaning out of the experiences you've had so that they become markers in your brain and in your heart and your gut um, that you can use later. So you alluded to, to dealing with depression, and I think that you, know, you look at the world today and we're seeing sort of a rise of mental health issues across the board, uh, you know, from celebrity founders to you know, people like Anthony Bourdain committing suicide. Uh, I wonder, one, how did you get out of it? And what role do you think that the world that we live in, in terms of technology and, and social media and all that plays in, in the issues that we're dealing with? Well, it's, you know, there are a lot of in, the external influences. There's, that's, there always have been, you know, there are a lot of people in depressing, you know, you could have been a pioneer going across the, uh, the prairie uh, and, you know, having people die because they didn't have food and that could lead to depression. But generally speaking, and this is sort of an, an odd thing to say, but it's depression, the way we understand it in the modern world is often a sort of first world phenomena. It doesn't mean that people aren't depressed in third in sort of third world or developing countries. Of course they are. But in some ways, when people are in a state where it's very survival driven, being depressed actually puts your survival at risk. And, and frankly, in a survivalist culture, you may not live very long in that way. But in a modern culture, you can. Um, and, there, and therefore, I think we have to look at in the modern culture, what are the things that actually influence that? And um, there's so much evidence empirically that how we see ourselves relative to other people has an enormous influence on our happiness. Famous studies long ago, uh, not, not, well, not that long ago, maybe 10 to 15 years ago, about if people were asked if you could make $50,000 a year, but make, you're making more than your neighbors or $150,000 a year and you're making less than your neighbors, which would you choose? And on average, people chose the $50,000 a year because from a relative perspective, you were making more than your neighbors. So someone could put themselves mentally in, in the place of um, thinking that that means, okay, maybe I'm living in rural Mexico and, uh, uh, so I think that that kind of thinking makes us realize, okay, relative happiness 
is, is very relevant to how we feel about ourselves. And, and the relevant happiness, where do we find it? We find it in social media today. And yet social media is not exactly a, an accurate format. Um, you know, because we're in many ways, we're sort of, there's a, it's narcissism on display on some level. And it's not, I, I'm not, I'm not totally negative about social media, but I do think learning how to dose it in proper quantities and to realize that, you know, comparing your insides with other people's outsides has always been a rather toxic game. And it's even more toxic in the world of, of, um, social media because, the person who's posted has everything, they have every ability to just preen and make themselves look perfect um, because they're posting about themselves. So I think um, it, one of the things I learned in my early 20s was about mindfulness and about meditation. And for me, meditation has been the, probably the godsend for my mental health and especially in t- times when I have felt maybe some depression. Um, Meditation takes me inside. Uh, I'm not. I'm not comparing myself in a relative way with other people, and um, it has helped me to feel more balanced and centered at times when I felt off center. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Uh, well, there are four key areas that you talk about in the book that uh, I wanted to get into where you kind of distilled them into lessons. You said lesson one was evolve, lesson two, curiosity, lesson three, collaborate, and lesson four, counsel. And I think the, the thing that struck me most uh, in the section on evolve where, was when you said presence is far more intricate and rewarding uh, an art than productivity. The cult of productivity has its place, but worshiping at its altar 
can rob us of our sense of curiosity, joy, and wonder, and rob a company of its ability to self-reflect. And I'll tell you why this struck me in particular. Uh, I was an intern at Intuit between my first and second year of business school, and I remember you know, sitting in, in a lunch and learn. And my entire goal of that internship was to get an offer at the end. That was it. It didn't matter. Nothing else mattered. And of course, I didn't get an offer at the end. But I remember this very distinctly because I asked a senior executive, what's the key to getting ahead? And she said, presence. And that came back to me 10 years later. So when I, I read that, I, I looked at it and thought, okay, that's you're echoing that exact sentiment. So how do you instill that in people who are filled with ambition and also at the same time balance that with uh, you know planning for the future? Because I, I know from reading the book, you and I are both surfers as well. And I always say surfing is like you, you keep your eyes on the horizon, but live in the moment. Yeah, so I, I think what's true of most things in life is that it's, no, it's like there's no single bullet, silver bullet nor being at one extreme or the other is the right place to be. It's usually somewhere on the, the moderated path in between. So I would say, you know, presence versus productivity. Well, for me, presence actually helps give me productivity. Um, uh, the opposite of presence is absence. And back to it's talking about social media and about our attachment to gadgets, I think what really strikes people sometimes about what I call a modern elder, um, or certainly I'll just speak for myself here at Airbnb, is people would say, you are just so present. And I would ask them, what does that mean? It means like, you're not distracted. It's not, it's, you're not distracted with your iPhone. You're not distracted with your own brain, like what's going on there. And you're not just listening to my story, you're listening for my story. And like, what does that mean? Well, listening for my story is like, you see the threads inside. You're like, you're seeing beyond the surface and you're seeing beyond the surface in me and in yourself. And that's some, I, I aspire to that. And it was, you know, when I heard things like that, I was like, wow, really aging can be aspirational. <laughs> you get older and you, maybe you build a little more presence with time. So presence is a really valuable gift. And yet if you're spending 10 hours a day meditating um, to build your presence, you, there is a, there's a point at which presence needs to actually then translate in the, in, the, in the organizational world to productivity and to action. Um, and so, so productivity has value in the world. It's just that it's, um, it's often almost seen as the, it, it's back to the car analogy. It's almost like seen as like the, um, you just, you're going to run your car as fast as possible and not ever take it in for a pit stop or even gas it up. <clears throat> no wonder at some point it runs out of gas and is exhausted and, and you've sort of burned it out. And that's <clears throat> to some degree how we live our lives. Um, it's certainly mine. I, 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 listen, I'm a type A person. Um, and when it comes to surfing, I, uh, there's two, two ways of being in my life. And it's either you're in the attain mode or you're in the attune mode. And when you're in the attain mode, <clears throat> it's usually conquest. It's usually very type A, etc. And I spend a lot of my life that way. So I'm just, to, for, you know, I'm not like floating on air here. When I try to attain in yoga <clears throat> or in surfing, it's really hard. But when I get into the attune mode, which is frankly attuning and harmonizing myself with my surroundings or with my body or with the wave um, or with a team, when all of that's happening, I'm in a place where I'm able to ride that wave. Uh, and so I think the key in life is to be able to determine when does it make sense to be in the attain mode and when does it make sense to be in, in the attune mode. And those two differences, are, those two ways of being, um, can serve you both. But you just need to know when... when When's the right time to be in one versus the other? So in the collaborate section, you brought up four things that really struck me. You said create psychological safety, make collaboration part of the culture, personality assessment tools, and implicit or explicit agreements. Can you expand on each one of those? The psychological safety in particular is the one that really struck me. Well, let's, let's do one at a time. So tell, go ahead okay, and give so each one. Create psychological safety. Well, this is fascinating because you know Google... You know, one of the most valuable companies in the world is a tech company, first and foremost, full of engineers 
full of people who, um, you know, and frankly, full of really smart people. And so Google said, like, what they wanted to study why are some teams more effective than other teams? They created something called Project Aristotle and they studied other teams globally. And what they found is that the num- there were five <clears throat> key reasons for uh, uh, the effectiveness of teams. But the number one far and away was psychological safety, which in essence means that everybody on a team feels appreciated and respected and able to communicate um, and without fear of reprisal. And this includes introverts. It includes people who are the others in the room, the people who don't look like everybody else in the room. Cognitive diversity um, uh, is very relevant to this as well. So one of the relevances of this to my experience and the book was I saw the teams when I joined at Airbnb. The teams were generally mostly young men um, who were incredibly competitive with each other. (laughs) And there was not that much of a collaborative spirit for some of them. And, And frankly, it was the women or the older people in the room who frankly helped create the collaboration. Um, and that was the part that was remarkable. It was that it, like it was, it was the people who were so-called the others on the teams. Um, and so I think that, you know, the key, one key lesson here is that, um, having cognitive diversity on a team is very valuable because it means you don't get into the group think that can happen. Um, and, so that, that's my thoughts on psychological safety. What do you say to somebody who doesn't feel like they're in a situation where they have psychological safety? Because I can tell you from the bosses that I worked for that I pretty much gathered that, okay, me and the corporate world are never meant to be again. You know, I, th- I think um, the key is that, first of all, even bringing up those two words, psychological safety, is not a bad idea uh, to a boss who may be sitting in meetings with you. Now you may, especially if you're a guy, a lot of guys say, Oh God, I feel like such a wimp. You know, I need, I need psychological safety. Um, no, you know, the point of this is not to say that you're a wimp or that somehow you're fragile. It's actually to say, um, the environment that is set by whoever's leading the meeting can have an enormous influence on people doing their best work in the meeting. Um, and so, I think that, and if psychological safety is a, a term that feels a little bit too fragile for you, then just say, how do you help whoever's leading the meeting? It could be your boss. Create the conditions for people to do their best work uh, in the context of those meetings. Um, and you know, the the my book lays out what are some of the key things to know, and and it has a lot to do with really obvious things where people don't shut shut each other down. They don't use questions as a means of of almost badgering the witness. Um, there, the idea of appreciative inquiry, which is how to use questions that are catalytic in terms of people think of thinking about the possibilities. Um, so I, I, I can't get. I mean, there's a lot more we could go into on that one, but I want to make sure we ca- we capture the other three as well. Uh, the other is, is making collaboration part of the culture. How do you guys do that, and how do other people do that? Well, I think the key is you know you helping. You know, there's a very interesting narrative in the media about the sort of the the lone tech genius who just sort of does it on their own and <laughs> and as if you know Steve Jobs just did it all on his own and uh, Mark Zuckerberg did it all on his own no it's always been collaborative there may be there may be breakthroughs and there are geniuses who do come up with an idea that actually is catalytic to an organization but the process of then executing that is absolutely a team sport and so within that um, helping people to understand different styles of personality is one key piece. Some of it's the you know the, the thing I, we talked about with psychological safety. What are the what are the rules of engagement in a group or in a meeting? Um, you know, if you're actually in a meeting with a regular group of people and you as a team or the leader has never really addressed what are the rules of engagement? Wow! I mean, it's sort of like like going and. Um, driving a car without any laws of the road. You have to have some rules of engagement. And it's a really helpful process, especially if it's a group that meets regularly. It'd be helpful to sort of say, what are our rules of engagement? Um, you know, I, I go to Burning Man every year. I'm on the Burning Man board. And there are rules of engagement for Burning Man, which are the 10 principles. And so having, having clear engagement rules are, are part of what I think makes for collaboration to be more effective. 
um, I think one of the next ones you talked about was it was the person was it personality typing tools. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that also helps too. So so that's the third one, and it sort of relates to this is you know when you actually understand different personality styles. So let me use an example. Um, so there are three three founders of Airbnb, um, and two of them are exact opposites. Brian and Nate are exact opposites on Myers Briggs. So, but they'd never actually been told that before. And they, while they got along okay, they were almost like from different planets. And so, when I I would lead mo- most of our offsite retreats for the leadership team, and um, I. So I said, well, let's let's bring in a. I'm not a huge fan of Myers Briggs. I think it's okay. There's other things I like the the Enneagram better as a tool, um, but Myers Briggs is more better known. And so we brought in somebody who was doing some uh, offset retreat facilitation, and we did the Myers Briggs. All twelve people. We started saying, okay, what are the themes here, and what are the influences in terms of how our meetings run based upon these different personality types. But I would say for Brian and Nate to come to the conclusion, like, oh my God, we're exact opposites. There's 16 types, and there's only one other type that I could be the exact opposite of, and you are it. <clears throat> that became quite valuable because those two who previously were almost, I wouldn't say they were, they were never suspicious of each other, but, but, but sometimes maybe not on the same page, they all of a sudden started having a respect to realize, wow, he has my back. He is the complement to me, uh, the yin to the yang. And that actually really helped them to create and forge a much, much closer relationship, uh, working relationship. Um, So, yeah, so I think there's a lot of value in making sure people understand different personality types. And I guess the final one is implicit or explicit trade agreements. What do we mean? Yeah, what that that speaks to is the idea, um, more related to the idea of mutual mentoring. I was brought in to be the head of global hospitality and strategy at Airbnb, but I, t- I oversaw about six or eight other things. But one of the other things I was brought in to do was to be Brian Chesky's in-house mentor. Um, but what became clear to me is that Brian knew a lot of things I didn't know. Now, I was his mentor when it came to emotional intelligence, leadership skills, uh, maybe strategic thinking, and a few other things, and certainly the industry knowledge of the hospitality business. But Brian understood the tech industry. He understood Silicon Valley. He understood the Silicon Valley investors. He understood millennial travel habits. Um, and so uh, the implicit trade agreement is the idea that there is somebody else out there in your organization who you could learn from and they could learn from you. And you don't have to write up a formal trade agreement, nor do you actually even have to say to each other, we are going to have a formal mutual mentoring relationship or even a mentoring relationship. But you could just say, hey, once a week, what if we just actually grab some, you know, 30 minutes of tea or coffee in the afternoon and let's just let's just riff. Um, and some of the riffing may get to the place of saying, hey, I, you know, I see that you're really good at this. Um, in my case, it was like, show me how my iPhone works. <laughs> There's a lot of apps and, and things on my iPhone. I just have no idea how they work. And so sometimes it was that that much instructional. In Brian's case, it was often you know what? I'm having a really hard time getting through to the following three people um, and in terms of how I'm trying to help them as their leader. What am I doing wrong or what could I do differently? So, you know, that was a great example of, okay, I was offering Brian some EQ, emotional intelligence, and Brian was offering me some DQ, some digital intelligence. What do you think it is... Uh that has enabled people like Brian and the founders of Airbnb to perform at the level that they have and achieve the success that they have personality-wise, discipline-wise? Are there things about them you think that really have enabled them to, to get to this level? Well, let's start with the fact that, and I'm not sure if this is absolutely accurate, but we have done some research and have not found it. I don't know if there's ever been a company that has three founders still actively involved. Um, Joe's a little bit more involved in the innovation lab part of it, but he's still actively involved in business. He's still on the board. I don't know of a company that has had three young founders grow the company to this kind of valuation and still have all three, 10 years into it, still actively involved. So I'm really proud of that fact. <laughs> I've been there for five and a half of those 10 years. And I really know that when I joined, there were some challenges with the three of them. Not, none, none that were, you know, if I had never shown up, they probably still would have made it worked out. 
probably, but who knows? It, it was definitely dicey at, at times. But I think what's really critical is that they have built a, a level of respect for each other and they, they are additive to each other. Each, each of the three of them has a, uh, a particular sort of superpower that is really valuable to the company and may be respected by the others. Um, they're, been, they're constantly, all three are constantly willing to learn and get better. Um, uh, there's Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, about growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Uh, I sort of introduced that idea to them, and they all said, listen, we want to be individually with a growth mindset. We want the company to have a growth mindset. So I think that meant that we were, there was a constant interest in improving ourselves as opposed to just proving ourselves. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, clearly the, the business, <laughs> it helps when your business is doing well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the Airbnb took, had a very difficult first two years. And then by about 2010, really started to take off. And 2011 is when it really hit in a, a bigger way. I joined in early 2013. So I, by the time I joined, it was already, you know, a, a fast growing and rocket ship, but it was, you know, still only about one and a half to two percent of the size of it is what it is today. So, um, I want to ask you a few more questions about work and, and sort of success. You, you said that we still have an industrial era mentality toward productivity. How many quality widgets uh, an employee can produce quickly for the lowest potential overhead? And uh, I wonder, one, what do you think the future of work is going to look like, given that we're automating so much and we're doing so much with technology and this is a really strange question, but why do you think there are people who hate their jobs or end up in jobs they hate? Like, how does that even happen? How does somebody get hired for a job they can't stand? That's a really interesting... So let's start with that part. Um, it's interesting. I had a, I gave a talk yesterday, and I, I mentioned something to someone. There's a Fortune 500 executive who heard me give a speech a few years ago, and he pulled me aside afterwards, and he said, um, you know what? I have so much dead wood in my company. And I said, what do you mean dead one? He says, just lots of people who are apathetic and don't care. They've been there too long. And I said, were they deadwood when you hired them? Or did they become deadwood while you were their leader? <laughs> um, you know, the fact that they're deadwood is like, you know, you're almost blaming it on them. But I would say take some responsibility. Um, and if it's during your leadership, then that's a bad sign about the culture. If they if you hired and mistakenly then that's where raw materials are so essential. A lot of people don't think of their talent as raw materials. And if you have bad raw materials coming in, you're going to have bad raw materials coming out. And so the, I say, you know, there's questions I love that are my favorite interview questions. And I used to do a lot of the interviewing of senior executives that weren't even high, I'm answering to me because Brian liked my point of view. I really appreciate that we have three kinds of relationships with our work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. I, I will not hire somebody if I feel like I'm giving them a job. Even for back in the day when I was a hotelier, someone on the front desk or someone on, as a bellman, if it's just a job for them, it's not worth taking that space and having someone who's just going to be filling a space for a job. I want someone who thinks of it as a career or preferentially a, a calling, although that's more rare. And how do you find that? Well, you ask questions. Like the question I love to ask for people who are going to be on on the front desk of our hotels, is, you know, who are in the service businesses, tell me about somebody, something you did for someone else in the last um, month where you were providing a service to somebody that you didn't have to provide, or, or you, you you just gave something to somebody. What did you do? Who'd you do it for? How did it make them feel? How did it make you feel? And the qualitative way of how they answer that question in terms of enthusiasm, uh, you know, just, just the level of, you know, do, do, does, do I hear a passion um, has an enormous influence on whether we would hire that person. Even if they already had like, you know, all this beautiful four seasons background, all that stuff. But if they didn't answer that one very well, it was an indication to me that this was probably a job for them. And what I really want to do is I, I don't want to have an accountant on the front desk of the hotel because they like being behind the scenes. They're introverted and they like doing numbers. That's not who and the person on the front desk of the hotel is going to be somebody who loves providing service, loves providing hospitality, loves making people happy. 
Um, and for all those reasons, I think the quality of the questions we ask people um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the key of making sure that you are hiring people who fit with the core values of your company and the culture are really essential. And I like core values more than culture. Cult- the risk of saying it the, you want people who are the c- culture is that you just get all the same people who look the same. Core values is a little bit deeper than that. It's interesting as we were talking about it from the hiring side. Uh, I think you know, we want to look at it from the side of choosing. And the reason this is fresh in my mind is because I'm working on a section uh, for a new book proposal about passion and the fact that you know we, we have this sort of idea of blindly following a passion that we know nothing about. And I realized how, how many times in my life I'd done that without actually thinking of what is this going to be like day to day? And am I actually engaged in this thing that I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, it's, we can become robots, that's for sure. Um, you know, I don't know if I have much to, more to offer on that other than to say that, um, you know, the thing I will say that's an interesting observation, I, someone recently said to me, an executive recruiter who's probably maybe the best in the world, and I, I was asking her a question about the fact that I, I'm meeting more and more people who are in midlife, and let's, I'm defining midlife as 35 to 75. It used to be 45 to 65, but I think actually midlife is going younger. Because in a lot of industries with the technology driving the business model, it's, there's more and more of an interest in having digital natives, younger people, and people are going to work longer because they're going to live longer. So, so I said, like people in, in midlife, 35 to 75, there's a lot of them feeling like, wow, they're too old. Um, how do they hide their age? Is what I asked her, and she said something just so beautiful. She said, truly. Um, assuming you can get your foot in the door, that's the challenge. You know, sometimes they just weed you out because your, your alma mater, you know, your, your graduation year from college is too, you know, too, too long ago, I mean, which is literally it, companies that do that are actually doing something illegal. That's discrimination. Uh, so, but you know, um, the fact is she said when someone's curious and they're passionately engaged in what they do, their wrinkles evaporate. And so what in essence she was saying is when someone's got the right kind of energy and they're really involved, um, you lose track of their age. And so I, I think that's a really important part of how I interview people too. It was like, do I get this person's pulse? And if I actually don't get their pulse, if I don't really get their energy, um, then I want to explore it further. And if ultimately, like, you know, they may be the best in the world, but if something doesn't feel right quite energetically, my favorite question is, what's the number one way you're misperceived in the workplace? And that's a, a, almost a trick question. It's like people have said, wait, misperceived, huh? So I'm this way, but people perceive me that way. Or, And it's a helpful question because it forces people to show their level of self-awareness and their level of emotional intelligence for how other people see them too. And it also allows them to tell you how they have adapted to try to address that issue well i have two final questions for you i know you got to get going here so you said one thing i've learned is that living richly is less about the net worth on your bank statement more about the value of the lessons who offer those who want to learn you have to offer those who want to learn from you and that struck me particularly because my first thought was well yeah that's easy for you to say (laughs) you know -hmm. you're high up at airbnb you've sold a hotel company but i wonder uh how is that? But I've always believed that. So I've always what believed I was going to ask so, you is, is, you know, has that perspective changed over time? How do you value money and success? Uh, and how has that changed with age? And then given, you know, that uh, we're seeing such a large amount of inequality, you know, what do you think of all that? Well, I, you know, I think it goes back to something we talked about early in this conversation, which is, um, uh, I think that, How we see ourselves relative to other people is an important marker, but probably way too important. We, we, at a very young age, we're taught too often that that sort of benchmarking versus others um, is the way we determine whether we're successful or happy. And I can tell you when it comes to happiness, it's not true. (laughs) You know, markers versus other people, whether it's, you know, how many zeros you have in your bank account um, or, or whatever it is, how, what, what your title is, 
usually doesn't actually create happiness. It might create the sense of success. The problem with our culture is that we've sort of built the model of success creates happiness. And it's really the opposite. More often, happiness creates success. And it's part of the reason I went to Bhutan 10 years ago to study the Gross National Happiness Index. And I gave a TED Talk about it because I wanted to just say, well, you know, not uh, happiness is, a, is an intangible metric, but a really interesting one. And could companies create the conditions for people to be happy and therefore, through that happiness, um, maximize their success? And Tony Shea at Zappos, you know, sort of studied me with Peak and really loved that, my, my book Peak, which I wrote about 10 years ago. And there's a lot of companies now that have, and frankly, a whole Harvard Business Review um, issue um, dedicated to the idea that happiness in an organizational context um, is an incredibly uh, correlated with success. And so I think that if that's true in an organizational context, of course, it's pr- true on a personal context as well. Well, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, when they've somehow tapped into like whatever it is inside themselves that is just sort of their gift that they have to give to the world. Um, and some t- people don't figure that out to their 50s or 60s, and others figure it out when they're five years old. But once you start to really tap into that, um, and then you sort of say, well, what, at what can I be world-class and how do I invest in that? Um, it really gives you the opportunity to, um, to frankly, tap into the thing that is going to differentiate you, be your legacy, and, you know, frankly, help you to be more successful. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end uh, to a really insightful conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and the book? So chipconley.com is my website. And at that website, you'll, uh, there's, you'll see a part of the website that's related to the book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. You'll also see the Modern Elder Academy, uh, which is at modernelderacademy.org, which is part of the Chip Conley site. Which is the uh, new uh, mid for the, the world's first midlife uh, wisdom school that we've created in Baja California on the coast, uh, three acre campus, um, and you'll be reading more about that because it's actually getting a lot of attention. Very cool, awesome! Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights with our listeners. Yes, what a joy! I appreciate the great questions. Uh, Well, thank you very much. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.